What's up, guys? This is Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Recently on the Winging It podcast, Vince Carter and Annie Finberg sat down with NBA All-Star Kyle Lowry and recording artist for Timmy. This week, 2017 first overall pick Markel Fultz joins the show to talk about living up to expectations and working his way back from injury in the NBA. Make sure to check out Winging It on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. everybody this is Larry Wilborn you're listening to Black on the Air yes Black on the Air <laughs> Black and I'm on the air I haven't made fun of the title in a while um on the show today is uh, Dan Pfeiffer talking about his book Untrumping America plan to make America democracy again guys there's so much good stuff in this book I just got it so I haven't read it in detail but um it's really it's you know what it is it's really entertaining and it's kind of sobering at the same time. You know, Dan uh, worked in the Obama administration, and uh, he's on uh, co-host of Pod Save America. He's part of the Crooked Media Group. Really good group of guys over there. And uh, he just has a lot of good observations about this. Some I kind of disagree with, you know, and we talk about it. It's a real good conversation because it's crazy right now. Who knows uh, what's going to happen at this point. As of right now, Recording this on Thursday morning, right after Super Tuesday, Elizabeth Warren has just dropped out of the race. And man, since I talked to you just a week ago, Jesus Christ, look at everything that's happened with Biden winning South Carolina, <laughs> brothers coming to the rescue <laughs> to save Biden's Biden's run. And then he just, man, he murders on Super Tuesday and everybody dropping out like the last scene of The Godfather where you know, Michael's just just knocking everybody off that final scene. It was really amazing. And now it seems like uh, it's really a, a clear demarcation of energy going out there to win the presidency now. Bernie Sanders with his vision for something and Biden with his reason against something is the way that I'm looking at it. And that's what people are going to have to vote for. And we're going to see. I mean, there's so much establishment energy against Bernie right now, and it's fascinating to watch. You know, well, people, the Democrats seem scared shitless when Bernie started winning this. It was hilarious. Oh, no, what did we do? We like Bernie, but not that much. That's what it seemed like. You know, they were so happy. You could see people so relieved when Biden started winning. But this is not over, and it's going to be interesting. You know, me, as you know, I don't really— I don't get behind candidates. You know, I like to observe this, you know, from my from a neutral position. And I like both of these candidates, you know, for completely different reasons. Although I'm very concerned about Biden. I'm concerned about both of them for different reasons, to be honest. I'm not concerned about Bernie personally, although Bernie just had a heart attack. People kind of forgot that. You know, I mean, he he looks to the guy that had the heart attack that is almost 80 <laughs> looks to be in better control of his faculties than the guy that hasn't had the heart attack, ironically, you know. But I am concerned about Biden. There's something There's something going on there that I don't know if they're not sharing with us or not telling us, but a lot of what's happening, I don't consider them gaffes, you know, the things that uh, he's doing. And it may be related to, you know, Biden says he has a stuttering problem, and it may be related to how he processes things. But... Um, he'll get into the middle of a sentence and just derail and just go off somewhere that is, I don't know where the fuck he's going. And I don't know what's going on because of that. And um, it's funny how a little thing like that can really just, 
I mean, it can just puncture the enthusiasm, I think, for his candidacy when those things happen, especially at the wrong time. And I worry about that, you know, because I do think Biden's a good man and all that. I don't think he has a compelling vision for the country. I just don't, other than beat Trump. You know, maybe I'm wrong about that. Or let's say he has not presented it in a way where I go, you know what? I like the fact that Biden's for that. I have no idea what Biden's for, and I follow this shit. Bernie, on the other hand, it's very clear. He's always been for Medicare for All, you know, getting rid of student debt. Um, You know, there's a lot on his platform that people can identify with instantly because he's been standing for that for a long time. Bernie's problem is, is that because he's been doing that for a long time, he's kind of in a bubble, and it feels like he's not elastic within that. He doesn't feel like he's listening sometimes. And he was on 60 Minutes, and he's— He's giving a soft cover for, like, Fidel Castro and, you know, and some of these leftist authoritarian leaders. It feels like, you know, Bernie, what are you talking about? You're not, like, you're just not having a casual conversation about this. Why the fuck are you even trying to defend Fidel Castro? It doesn't even make sense. Just move on or pivot or whatever. You're you're spending too much energy doing that, you know, and that turns a lot of people off. Like, he may have lost Florida because of that type of thing. And to me, it's just it's just dumb politicking. Like, Castro's not even alive, for Christ's sakes. Why are you spending your energy doing that? It doesn't make sense, you know. Are you trying to tell us you're this leftist Marxist? I don't know, you know, but why are you doing that? Why are you trying to lose this when you're at the one-yard line? I have no idea. So Bernie has to, I think, kind of understand that even though he's not a Democrat, he's running for the he's running the Democratic Party, you know, and I think there has to be some respect over there for being the head of the Democratic Party. You just can't be isolated in a bubble and just want this revolution and want to throw everything over and not acknowledge that there's been a legacy of people fighting for a lot of these things that we have right now, you know. People going door to door, you know, marching and all those things, you know. Parties are built piece by piece, you know. There's a legacy to that. You can't just throw it out. Not saying that he wants to, but I think there needs to be more respect for that. So, I think there are pluses and minuses to what both candidates have right now and who's going to have the energy that's going to be the energy to beat Trump is the biggest thing. Because messaging is very problematic. It's going to be hard to beat Trump in the economy because the people who you need to come over to your side, it's going to be a tough argument to make to them that the economy is not doing well. You can make your slice and dice arguments are, well, it's not doing well for everybody, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I consider that the losing comment because if you were in power right now, you would absolutely be taking credit for this. In fact, Obama, as he was leaving office, was taking credit for a good economy. How did it turn bad all of a sudden? The answer is these problems that we're talking about are systemic problems that have been going on for decades, really. That's the issue. So you can't, it's not really, you know, a president's fault for something, you could say the president is ignoring it, but you certainly can't use it as a wedge, you know. Not a winning wedge, at least, you know. People who already believe in that, of course, but the people who you have to convince, that's the thing. How are you going to convince them? So which candidate now? We got Bernie and we got Biden. Which candidate, if you're a Democrat and you want to see Trump out of the White House, which candidate is going to do it? The candidate who's for something is for this vision. And by the way, what Bernie is for is probably where the Democratic Party is going in the AOC direction and a lot of that energy. I don't know if they're going to go there this year, but they're definitely going in that direction, it feels like. Or do people want the comfort food, you know, the kind of uh, chicken pot pie (laughs) of Biden, you know? And that's tough, too, because 
all of Biden's energy is that guy has to go. <laughs> you know, why not vote for me? <laughs> oh, man, this is going to be so tough. It's going to be interesting. It, the thing here's the thing to watch for that that I'm going to be talking about a lot, too, is is the uh, the energy that goes out against Bernie is going to be fascinating to watch, you know. And in terms of watching Biden, let's see how how Biden um how he appears when the spotlight is on a little more and he has to answer things directly and how he comports himself because that's going to be very important. And the thing, ultimately, I think the thing that may save Biden, if indeed he becomes the candidate, is the vice presidency. He may need somebody with a lot of energy and bigger, you know, certainly a younger person, you know, to be in that position, you know, kind of like, you know, Palin tried to, they tried to have Palin do that with McCain because the Republicans really didn't care about McCain. Biden's a little different. I think Democrats do like Biden, but I think he's going to need somebody with him. Bernie, on the other hand, I don't know. I feel like Bernie could run without a vice president. <laughs> it could just be Bernie. Feel the burn, everybody. Why do we need anybody else? There's too much burning going around. So I think Bernie's vice president is kind of irrelevant, really, you know. The people that want Bernie, that's what they want. But the people who are going to vote for Biden, I think they're going to need a little more. So we shall see. All right. So that's what we got. I'm going to talk to Dan Pfeiffer a little bit more about this and where the party is and all that kind of stuff. And I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Welcome back, everybody. Such a pleasure to have this man back here. We, you were on Black in the Air, or have we had you we, I have not. I have not been You on. haven't been here. Long time listener, first time yes, guest, I, I guess, yes. But I had your previous book, yes. I remember. Maybe I talked about it on the yeah. end, We I'm, were supposed to do it, and then— That's probably what it well, was. I had this bad timing where my daughter was born three weeks before my book came what out. What the hell is wrong with you? Don't blame me. Blame my publisher. <laughs> <laughs> Untrumping America, Dan Pfeiffer. Welcome to the show, Dan. I'm excited to be here. It's so nice to see you. You're one of the smartest guys out there. Oh, thank and, you. And you worked—well, I love reading your stuff, too, because it's so funny. It always makes me laugh, too. You have such a good sense of humor thank about you. things. And even your your footnotes in the book, like they're all, they all seem like jokes or, I sort of or stole, side comments. I, right? I mean, those were sort of—that uh, is a concept stolen from Bill Simmons himself. So. Yes, there you go. Yes. From, from the ringer man himself, you know. And— um, you know, it's funny because your perspective is so interesting because mm. you, you know, worked inside that Obama machine mm. like right from the beginning, you know, yep. and really got to see it grow. You experienced the presidency in a way that none of us get to mm. kind of experience, which is kind of interesting, you know. And uh, and now you've got this little theory about uh, the Trumpification of America here, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Untrumping America. Okay. A plan to make America a democracy again. Let's start from there. Is America not a democracy now? I think no. And it's mm-hmm. it's the the title Make America Democracy Again is uh-huh. a little bit of trolling, obviously right. playing off of— It's a little of, facetious. It's a little facetious, uh, knowing that our democracy has always been uh, imperfect at best and right. has often been a power struggle between a white Christian mm-hmm. elite and— Mm-hmm. The rest and and how much with the question of how much political power to give when you say Christians, assuming there's a secular component well, and, out and, there that's been fighting against this. No, it's just okay. that's been that's been the going back to the founders, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, white Christian men have voting rights first, and right. then women, and then we have the Civil Rights and Voting Act. And mm-hmm. what what has been happening basically essentially since then is a effort to for like and that. Like there was comfort in providing some amount of political power to other groups back then because mm-hmm. 
because the majority of the country was white. Mm-hmm. And as we come closer and closer— And the comfort food was white male leadership. Right. Right. And just—and population, right, was mm-hmm. that you could have a party the the you could have you could win elections by getting by with a primarily white base and mm-hmm. as we've seen since 2008 that gets harder and harder for republicans to win with that way and so two choices become more have a more broadly appealing agenda mm-hmm. that, and try to live in a world where republicans are losing 80 to 90% of the african american vote or mm-hmm. 60 to 70% of the, the hispanic vote or double down on this white base of voters that turns out in every election and restrict the power of everyone else. Mm-hmm. And what I think, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is I want Democrats to understand that Donald Trump did not break our democracy. Mm-hmm. We have Donald Trump because we were broken democracy. He is someone who won with 3 million less votes. He he won Wisconsin, by, but he got fewer votes than Mitt Romney got in 2012 when Mitt Romney lost Wisconsin by seven points. Mm-hmm. And that is primarily because of voter suppression in Wisconsin and voter purges in Wisconsin meant that there were fewer Democrats to vote. Mm-hmm. And that is a phenomenon that happened primarily in Milwaukee, primarily among voters of color. And if we don't take on those sort of structural inequities, we're going to – even if we beat Trump in 2020, which I think is very possible, although hard, um, we're just going to be right back here with potentially a smarter, less easily distracted Trump who will spend his mornings focusing on – conservative power and not getting into Twitter wars with Deborah Messing, right? So Okay, there's a lot in that, yeah. what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me just go yeah. at a little bit of yeah. it, because I, I have a difference of opinion with some yeah. of it. You know? I don't believe that Hillary Clinton lost those states because of voter suppression. Okay. You know, I, if there was voter suppression, I believe it was because of the attacks on Hillary Clinton that suppressed the, the energy of the vote mm-hmm. to come out and vote for her. But I don't think there is a structural voter suppression that lost the election for Hillary Clinton. Um, it certainly reduced her margin of error, though. Like it, in a world in which you— Like in other words, yeah. I think to to view it like that was yeah. the problem is not a true forensic mm-hmm. investigation yeah. of candidacy. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like it's a valid investigation of a system, yeah. but not to me. That's not a true forensic investigation of what happened with the Hillary candidacy. Right. Because it, it was replicated, as we know— over like five states, yeah. right? Well, so I'd, I'd say a couple things on that. One, in an election where someone loses by seventy thousand votes over three states, mm-hmm. anything and everything sure is up for grabs, right? Yeah, right, right, right. And so, like, yes, did Jim Comey uh, releasing his letter a few days before the election mm-hmm. hurt Hillary? Absolutely. Did it hurt her enough to be the reason she lost? We don't know. Did the did general just complacency in a world in which everyone thought Trump was going to lose impact turnout? Absolutely, I think to a certain degree. Yeah, I think for sure. Yeah. Was that an, the was that the specific reason why she lost? I don't know. Is it true that she had to operate under a particularly in Pennsylvania, particularly in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, that she have to operate with a smaller universe of Democratic voters because of voter suppression laws? That is true. Now, is that the reason she specific reason she lost? I do not know, but it, but it's going to get harder and harder. But yeah. that is still in like the voter suppression and gerrymandering in Wisconsin as an example yeah. is evident at the state and local level as well. You you sure. see that there, and and I'm and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not discounting yeah, that yeah. as as a thing, but in terms of like that Hillary candidacy, just to go back to that, yeah. it's kind of interesting because, you know, from my mind, I think there was a lot of I think Democrats didn't appreciate the amount of Clinton fatigue that was going on. Not with your diehard people who, you know, they're going to go out there, but 
like I like to talk to a lot of people, and I have some friends in this category who aren't really that political, yep. you know. And some of them will vote for either party, you know. There's mm. it's amazing how many yeah. people are like that, and many of them just couldn't get behind mm. Hillary Clinton. They saw her, and I don't see, I don't use the word corrupt like mm. the way people do with yeah. her, you know. And you have an inside view of yeah. of Clinton, of course, yeah. that you know a lot of us aren't privy to. And I think she had a problem with communicating who she really was with this image that she was fighting. You know, and the Republicans had a lot to do with that image, right. too, especially in those last few years, starting yeah. with Benghazi and all that. Yeah. But to me, like, the heart of it was this thing that she could not overcome was that perception, you know, that that didn't allow people to be as excited in these certain areas that I felt that they probably would have been with a different candidate. Like, I think Joe Biden runs in that election. I think he beats Trump. Yeah. I really do. You yeah. Know? I think there's a lot to that. And I I do struggle with how do you figure out like what was specific to that election? What mm-hmm. was specific to Clinton? And I don't mean Hillary Clinton, the person. I mean the everything that goes with having been on the political stage yeah. for 30 years, being one of the most polarizing figures in American politics for right. 30 years, yeah. the, being someone who's been the target of a decades-long uh, Republican attack campaign that right. even before Benghazi, like Benghazi, what really happened was <laughs> Benghazi ben- made it so like, yeah, yeah. well, Benghazi <laughs> plus emails made, was like pushing on an yeah. open door because exactly. it, it's, it was consistent with a, with work that had been done to create this image of her among a lot of voters. And right. back in the 2016 election, we were trying to, when John Favreau and I would talk about this mm-hmm. on our podcast, we were trying. We were trying to understand, like the never Trump, like if in a world where there was a Democratic Donald Trump, mm-hmm. right, who someone who we thought was wholly unqualified and dangerous and should not be president, would we vote for a Republican mm-hmm. over that person, right? right? And we were trying to figure out, like, who, like we could never really figure out who the Democratic Trump would be. We used Kanye West as a stand-in, mm-hmm. but that obviously, <laughs> obviously he is uh, right. that he would not be running in that primary now. Mm-hmm. But the like the the Republican who would be the like would be Dick Cheney. Like, what if that person was running against Dick Cheney, who was this bogeyman figure, I think for good reasons, the Democratic Party. And I think the fact that it was Hillary made it harder for people who were uncomfortable with Trump mm-hmm. to vote for her. And I think you're exactly right. I think it's Clinton fatigue. I think certainly mistakes that were made in her campaign, and some of it was stuff mm-hmm. that was baked into the cake long before she even decided to run. Right. And unfortunately, there was a movement that was just starting then that we're more aware of now, and it was being attacked from the left. Yep. And that's when uh, Michelle Alexander had just had come out with her book. Mm-hmm. It was a few years earlier, actually, about uh, the new Jim Crow and talking about the crime bill mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, and this one mm-hmm. I talked about, mm-hmm. too, why Hillary Clinton was blamed for the crime bill yeah. that Joe Biden wrote <laughs> yeah. and her husband signed. Yeah. And she wasn't even in office during yeah. this. You know, she made that speech about super predators yeah. or whatever, you know. And she was kind of she was really the way she was attacked about that yeah. from the left you know, of her own party, I feel also did a lot of suppressing of oh, that for sure. energy, for too, sure. unfortunately for her. Yeah. I thought that was unfair, actually. Yeah, I, I totally agree that, yeah. like, you can't simultaneously make the argument that her experience as first lady is not sufficient to be president, and she was responsible for everything that happened while Bill Clinton right. was president. And, like, they're— Like, she got no credit for trying to get universal health care. right. 28 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Right? All, all, she yeah. got all the downside <laughs> right, exactly. from Republicans, none of the upside from <laughs> exactly, Democrats. Yeah. Exactly. And it, and there's like, and you just, the thing you know, it's all counterfactual, but what would have happened if people thought Trump could win? Uh-huh. Right? Like, would, 
Like, yeah. would some of those people, would, right, like, right, would right. people be more willing who did, if Democrat, they took it seriously? Yeah, if they, if like, because right. it felt, I think, for a lot of Republicans and Democrats, a safe vote or a safe non vote, which is right, like, right, right, right. I don't love Hillary. I don't like the crime bill or I don't yes. like this other thing or I just, she's not my favorite and therefore I, I'm, I'm not going to vote. vote. I mean, she's going to win anyway, yeah, right? right. And, that attitude. And I think yeah. there were some Republicans who did not love Trump but yeah. thought he was going to lose anyway. Right. So instead, like, in crossing the bridge to get to Hillary yes. was too far for them. So then they just voted Trump. It's like he's... Exactly. That way I don't I have to go to my right. family reunion and explain to everyone yes. that I was a Hillary voter. Good Completely. God, right? I think that explains yeah. it more than anything, yeah. honestly. You know, more yeah. than anything. Yeah. E- even... Notwithstanding all the problems no. about there, because they really are, no. you know, voter suppression, and that's a, no. a systemic thing that happens in so many places no. that we should talk about too. Let's talk about what Trumpism is. Could no. you talk about that a little bit in your book? Because um, I, I don't believe that Trump is a conservative, no. and he's not operating as a conservative. I think he is a Trumpist. I've used that term no. myself, but I use it in he's in that for the glorification of himself and his name, which is why, like when you see these memos that people put out. He, like he's the supreme leader, yeah. you know. How yeah. <laughs> they lather him with yeah. all this praise and everything. Yeah. But but you define it a little more specifically. Yeah, right? I I like I sort of think Trump is did to the Republican Party what he did to real estate in New York, which uh-huh. is find a pre existing structure, put his name on it, and make it more tacky. That's fantastic. And That's so, great. Yeah. Like he like, but mm-hmm. he does represent a, an extreme version in behavior, mm-hmm. like in the sort of the weirdness of his behavior, right. of what has been happening in the Republican Party for a long time, which mm-hmm. is a greater radicalization around racial grievance politics mm-hmm. funded by billionaires looking for tax cuts and less regulation. Mm-hmm. And Trump is, to Mitch McConnell, to the Koch brothers, he is a vehicle for mobilizing that white base mm-hmm. so that they can pass the tax cut or you know, get rid of regulations to make it harder to pollute your water and air. Mm-hmm. And so I, I describe Trumpism as, as authoritarian, leaning, billionaire-funded racial grievance politics. And mm-hmm. that is the, up until the moment when Republicans ha- have to develop a more broadly appealing agenda, that is going to be, I think, the future of the Republican Party. The next, The next Republican nominee or president is going to be a better behaved version of Trump. And, but, but this philosophy is going to continue. Yes. It, it, it is mm-hmm. it, like politics is all about political incentives, right? Mm-hmm. And right now, because of some of the structural inequities in politics that over the disproportionately reward white rural states, the disproportionately reward overly overwhelmingly white states, both in the Senate and the Electoral College, there is a path to success for Republicans that can be primarily dependent on white votes. How much of it do you think is the cultural rebuke to the left? I, I think that there is, like, we are, some of it is certainly a cultural rebuke to the left, mm-hmm. and some of that has been weaponized by Fox and the Republicans. And mm-hmm. we are becoming more, just as a nation, have been on this inexorable path of polarization. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's, like, Trump Trump does have a gut. Like, I don't think he is by any stretch of imagination a genius, but he does have he a— He does have a gut. He, he has a gut. <laughs> Literally, he has a figurative and a little gut. <laughs> I'll let others address his little gut. His figurative gut yes. is for those sort of soft spots that of mm-hmm. grievance among people and sort mm-hmm. of this idea that, like, the liberal elite Hollywood— mm-hmm. 
leftists are laughing at you in the middle of the country, which is so ironic coming mm-hmm. from a man who literally has a gold toilet in Manhattan. Yeah. Right? That somehow exactly. he is this... Uh, and had a, a huge TV show. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he swam in all those yeah. circles and all that stuff. Yeah. You know? But it, they, they have definitely weaponized... It's like a combination of sort of convincing people that there was this cultural disdain for... Um, people in the middle of the country uh, and middle of the country is not really geographic as much as it is sort of an identity thing. Cause mm-hmm. you can be in the South and feel that way. You can be in parts of California and feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and this fear that of demographic change, right? That America is changing culturally, changing demographically, and you're going to get left behind because it's going to become younger. It's going to become more diverse and your way of life is threatened. And I do think that, um, all of these changes happening right at a time when we had an African-American president, mm-hmm. even maybe sort of exacerbated some of that stuff along racial lines. Barack Obama once said to me, and I talked about this in my first book, that he thinks he became president 10 years too early. Mm-hmm. That the you, And I'm like, no, you didn't know about yeah, Sorry, no, we're <laughs> glad you were there. But his sort of, his sort of view was the very unique situation of his election – his background, being an Iraq war opponent at that moment, mm-hmm. gave him an opportunity that would not present itself, that it otherwise would not have presented itself to anyone other than a white man for a while. And so mm-hmm. he ended up being ahead of a decent portion of the country, a minority of the country for sure. Mm-hmm. And that um, and that that helped, you know, this is not Obama is responsible for Trump because you should not, but it is the view that politics became even more polarized along racial lines. Mm-hmm. You use Fox News' coverage, all of a sudden, Fox developed this, after Obama's like this, incredible interest in stories about white kids getting beaten up on school buses mm-hmm. by black kids, right? Like, mm-hmm. that is not unrelated to Barack Obama being president, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, do you think there's been a disconnect with the Obama presidency and the Democratic constituency? I felt that especially early on where... There's no harking back to it. There's no calling it out for anything in a positive way, the way the politics used to always work. I remember politicians saying, and the of JFK and LBJ and da-da-da, you know. Like, there, there's no, like, uh, legacy talk yeah. in the Democratic Party, you know, with Biden as, his, yeah. you know, who talks about Obama. But he talks about it more in terms of a friendship, yeah. but not in terms of a policy legacy. I think the Democratic Party is kind of missing that right now. Like, Obama— in fact, remember they were kind of trashing him in that first that, debate, that debate, yeah, which was fascinating. And then they to walked me. off stage, and someone said to him, "You know that guy's got a ninety-five percent approval rating among yeah. the voters you need." Yeah, but does he? I mean, his person does. But what about the Obama administration? Like, how, do Democrats have a disconnect with that time? Is there a feeling that there's not a support for anything that happened during that time? I think the disconnect is between the sort of elite. Uh, activist class that mm-hmm. is, that sort of dominates the political conversation in a Twitter universe mm-hmm. and actual voters. Like there is a reason that Mike Bloomberg, a Republican lacking in natural charisma who endorsed George mm-hmm. W. Bush was able to get to like 18% in the polls simply right. by running an ad with Obama and talking about having worked together with him. Bernie Sanders, as soon as this campaign gets in trouble, what does he do? Goes into the vault, takes out that Obama ad and puts it on the air in Florida. Mm-hmm. And I I think the one area where I think— But we, he's not running on Obamacare. 
He's not. Well, that, that's what I mean. He's running on, that, the, well, on the personality of Obama. Biden and right. uh, Pete Buttigieg both had great success in Iowa in particular saying, or I would say Biden nationally and Pete Buttigieg in Iowa had success saying we are going to build on Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Right. And that because Obama and I think Democrats will make a mistake in this election if we walk away from it because the best argument in polling against Trump is that he wants to get rid of Obamacare. Because mm-hmm. we like, there is a legitimate debate. Most people think we need to do more, and we absolutely should. And Barack Obama would be first in line who would say we have to build on what he accomplished. Mm-hmm. But if you basically buy Trump's argument that Obamacare is not just imperfect, but is bad, then you are you are inoculating him against the, against the most devastating political attack against him, which is if you reelect Trump, he will take away pre-existing conditions and millions of Americans will lose health care. But a lot of the, the youthful, well, I don't, no. don't want to say youthful, but a lot of the energetic movement Democratic Party agrees with that. They implicitly agree with it, you know. Yeah, I think but that is a the vocal way, minority, but yes. I don't think so. Yeah. Bernie Sanders is running for Medicare for All, something that, you know, Elizabeth Warren has had it and all yeah. the candidates have, without any acknowledgement of trying to fix or make better Obamacare. Like, they've completely distanced themselves from that in a certain way, which to me— this just happened like eight yeah. years ago. It wasn't that long ago when it happened in terms of uh, time, you know. I think there is a way to tell that story. And Warren did it at times more than Sanders does. I think she more naturally wanted to tie her campaign into the Obama legacy mm-hmm. than Bernie Sanders does. I think sometimes his Bernie less, but his campaign staff and surrogates certainly do so begrudgingly, mm-hmm. um, is that Medicare for all is the— next step to the, mm-hmm. to the so you can you can explain what was good about the ACA and how important it was and all the lives it saved and say now this is the next step and a person who agrees with that message and that policy path is Barack Obama himself who mm-hmm. in 2018 said that Medicare for all was a, a good natural successor to Obamacare and I think I do think like there has there is this disconnect in politics between what happens on Twitter and what's happening in voters minds which is mm-hmm. why I think People, if you're on Twitter, you think that Joe Biden is terrible because the loudest voices on Democratic political Twitter mm-hmm. do not like Joe Biden, right? right? And have been very dismissive as committed the whole time. But they're confused by these votes for Biden. Very, though. very confused. And that's yeah. why they think that somehow, like the Democratic establishment and Tom Perez sent out a secret message to two thirds of black voters across the country and said, go support Joe Biden, as opposed <laughs> to the fact that people actually really like him. And, right. and I think if you, like sometimes in this campaign, people were over some campaigns were overly responsive to the these sort of louder voices on Twitter mm-hmm. and not to what the actual voters wanted. And Biden to, to Biden's campaign's credit, which was obviously had many, you know, had many stumbles along the way, they really never played that game. And mm-hmm. they sort of stuck with what worked, which was and it's just, you know, you always play your best card, but his best card is he was Barack Obama's vice president. Barack Obama has a 95% approval rating and is even more popular with the most important constituency in the party, the African-American community. And if he stuck with that and did not, wasn't around trying to get like retweets and faves, uh, mm-hmm. he would have success. And at least as of Super Tuesday, he did. Right. So outside, like the energy behind the Democratic Party right now is to beat Trump. But the Democratic Party itself, I want to talk about the party itself. Yeah, of course. I know you talk about this and I feel like it's, it's having some existential issues. The Republican Party went through this with Trump, you yep. know, and after they lost to Obama, and I like how you bring up Mitt Romney yeah. as really the true example of yeah. what's happening right now, you know. Um, 
But I remember after they lost, they had all these meetings about yeah. what's, what's going on with the yeah. Republican Party. Yeah. They were trying to do a youth movement. At that time, they were trying to reach out to Latinos and yeah. wanted to do a whole immigration thing, yeah. which went out the window as soon as Trump you know, yeah. got the nomination. But Democrats, I fear – that's why I like your, your Romney analogy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as a lifelong Democrat myself, yeah. you know, I don't know what's happening to the party. When I say I don't know, I don't say that out of fear. I say that out of confusion, you know. Because right now, like Bernie is running for something and it feels like Biden's running against something. And my fear about Biden right now is it does, I don't know if he's presenting a vision for for what he wants to do. You yeah, know? I think I think that's right. The party and it, I think that's going to cause some issues. Yes, I think that yeah. that is a thing that Biden is going to have to fix if he becomes a nominee and if he wants to be president is he is it's a larger it's it's not just a a policy agenda because he has all like he has an equivalent to every policy that Bernie has. They're less far reaching, although they are more progressive than any previous Democratic nominee, which we sometimes forget, which mm-hmm. is Hillary's agenda was more progressive than Obama's 08 agenda. And Biden's 2020 agenda is more progressive than Hillary's 2016 agenda, but certainly less progressive than Bernie's. But so to back it up for a step, the party is we are in the middle of a big debate mm-hmm. and that is natural anyway in a time when you were coming after – when you have both come after a two-term president and then lost an election. It is one that we didn't really have into – nor in a normal course of business, we would have had this debate in the 2016 primary. Mm-hmm. But because – But Hillary was the defective. Right, right, right. Like we didn't – We skipped that we, whole we 100%, thing. We 100% skipped Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And Bernie Sanders raised a whole bunch of issues there mm-hmm. that became – that then sort of – frame the debate we would have in 2020. Mm-hmm. But imagine a world where, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden runs, Elizabeth Warren, in 2016, Elizabeth Warren runs, mm-hmm. uh, Kirsten Gillibrand runs, Cory Booker runs. We just have a bunch of different visions. And then you debate those things and the party would decide. And mm-hmm. either that message would have carried the day against Trump or it wouldn't have. And then we would reflect off of that. But the combination of going Clinton, Obama, Clinton, <laughs> has sort of set the party back in that sort of sorting process. Hmm. And then Trump is just like looms over everything, right? So it makes it hard to have this conversation because we all, candidates, operatives, the uh, podcasters, voters all have this 2016 PTSD mm-hmm. where, we, where it was like such a shocking result that, that we're like, and we no longer trust our guts to make decisions. So that's why- People have been going back and forth in this primary the whole time. Mm-hmm. And it is like the Biden tr- – and especially when then you put on that the number one issue that you ask voters about is who can be Trump, which is actually an unanswerable question. So it's mm-hmm. like you're not even picking a direction for the party. Right. And, you know, I think – so – Bernie has a very specific, very progressive agenda that sure, – which he had in 2016. Yep. You know, everyone mm-hmm. – is familiar with that, yeah. right? And it has worked in continuing to get young voters mm-hmm. excited about him. And he has made great great strides since 2016 expanding his appeal among Hispanic voters. Mm-hmm. The problem for Bernie is he is doing just as poorly in 2020 as he did in 2016 with African-American voters. Mm-hmm. And there is no path to nomination without it. Right. And Biden had— And, and regionally also. Yes. It, like, mm-hmm. just in—yeah, exactly, regionally. And and Biden has sort of got here by being the last man standing, mm-hmm. right? And, like, 
I mean that I don't mean that in a sort of a backhand. Well, he, compliment. Was, he was first man and last. Yes, man. that's what I mean. Basically, yeah, they like mm. we started with Biden. Right. Everyone then developed concerns about Biden. Then they went to Warren. Then they went to Kamala Harris. Then they went to Pete. Then they went to Bernie. Yeah, and then they I ended know. up back at Biden again. Right. They were like. Ugh. <laughs> It's like Churchill's comment about capitalism. It's the yeah. best form of government after every other form has been, <laughs> right. been exhausted. And, <laughs> and, and here we are in the, like Biden has gotten here by be, not just being the last man standing, but be, having convinced enough voters, rightly or wrongly, that he is our best bet to take on Trump. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's the answer. It, right. Like, and we'll never know, right? Like we'll never know whether John Kerry was a better bet to take on Trump than Howard Dean, mm-hmm. right? Just because he lost doesn't mean he was a worse bet, right? You mean Bush, right? Yeah, I'm sorry, with Bush, mm-hmm. yes, yes. And, um, but he is, and his message has primarily been, I can win, mm-hmm. and I worked for Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And he, but he has said other things, but like what voters have taken in are those two facts. And that is, that is potentially enough to win a Democratic primary. It's probably not enough to win a general election. And he's going to have to explain what he would do that would be different and better than Trump. Right. And and there's risk in it because usually you want to be the change candidate mm-hmm. in an election against an incumbent. And that would be the argument for Bernie. That would have been the argument, I think, to a certain extent for Elizabeth Warren and certainly for Pete Buttigieg. But for Biden, that's harder because he's been around forever. Right. I mean, it usually in my lifetime, it seems like the Democratic Party – Usually it's the party looking forward, and the Republicans are always like, let's make America great again. I mean, yeah. people forget Reagan said that, too. Yeah. Make America great again. You know, they want to go back to the halcyon days. You know, I feel like the Democrats are kind of in the we've never, let's make the country great again yeah. kind of uh, position, right? Well, we've never— uh, When we think about Biden, I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Bernie is not that. Bernie right. wants to take the country in a whole different— right. You know, the, direction. The, yeah. the untested proposition for Biden is there's been no one in— Modern political history is a Democrat who's run a restorative campaign. Yeah, I'm trying right? to think. Yeah, because we usually we usually pick the new and exciting person, and they right. pick, and the Republicans pick the next in line. And yeah. we flipped after 2016. We picked that we were ending up potentially picking, and Bernie is also sort yeah. of the next in line too because he was the runner up in the last yeah, election. Exactly. So it's not yeah. like ultimately after everything we've been through for the last year, it's not surprising that the two people remaining are the you know the former vice president in the run last time. And it's kind of the Democrats, if the Democrats who don't like Bernie Sanders because they view him as outside of the party and independent, it's the Democrats party's own fault by not having, as you say, mm-hmm. candidates really going um, up against Hillary Clinton because they just thought she was going to win it. Yeah. So nobody ran against it. It's kind of why her husband was not, was nominated in 92 because yeah. people thought Bush was going to be reelected yeah. then. And, you know, not even Biden ran. He had run, you know, earlier and yep. some other people, you know, kind of stepped down. You know, if um, if Trump wins the election, which unfortunately I predicted and I don't mm. like Rich, it makes me throw up in my yeah. mouth, Dan. I hear you. Um, I don't like to throw up in my mouth. <laughs> so, I'm glad that's a, as I'm sitting here next to you. I'm glad that's a figurative, a figurative point. Yes. <laughs> How what is the strategy to un-Trump America? If Trump is president again, because obviously if he's not president, you know, it seems like an easier, yeah. <laughs> easier thing to do. But how do you un-Trump America with Trump as president? I think like in my in the book, I lay out, I talk about two things. One, how we beat Trump. Right. Okay. And then uh, how do we beat Trump? Well, what, what, what we there, there's a whole host of ways we do it. And, and we talk about that. But then also I lay out what we do after we beat Trump, how okay. we take on uh the things that are preventing progressive power in this country. Mm-hmm. But let's say Trump wins, mm-hmm. okay, which 
I also throw up in my mouth. And every many people listening probably are throwing up in their mouth right. as we speak. The like the Democratic Party is going to have to look in the mirror mm-hmm. and recognize that what we have done to date has not just not worked; it mm-hmm. has failed miserably. And I think that is as much about messaging and policy agenda as it is about strategy and tactics. Okay. And the way that we are going to defeat Trumpism, right, is probably going to be at the grassroots level. Like we are going to have to like, and in, in we like we're going to have to do the work that was done in 2017 in Virginia, 2018 around the country and organize everywhere, right? We're going to have, we have to win state legislative races so we can win governor's races so we can uh, put more progressive policies there so we can make it mm-hmm. so people don't wait five hours. Oh, to by the Texas. way, why is the party waiting so long to do this? We haven't like, I spent you a know, you know, this is, we've known about these things forever. We are, we are a party <laughs> that has two challenges. One mm-hmm. is we're obsessed with the presidency. Yes. And that is a mistake. And is that a glamour type of thing, you think? Or? I mean, maybe it's Aaron Sorkin's fault. I don't <laughs> really know, but it is. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's because we believe so passionately in the power of government to do things. Mm-hmm. We go to, we immediately default to the high, the place where you one person can make the most impact. Right. And so- that that comes at the expense, and that that is the party itself. That's also our voters, right? Mm-hmm. We have a huge turnout differential between midterms and presidential elections, mm-hmm. and that is like, and that has cost us dearly. And so we have to reorient the focus of the party mm-hmm. and the importance of winning Congress, which I think we've made some progress on. This, you know, the Senate and the, because of the Supreme Court, but also up and down the ballot. And the fact that people in two thousand seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen ran everywhere and raised a record amount of money and had record number of volunteers for like state legislative races is a huge positive sign. But we have to keep mm-hmm. that. We can't either get complacent if Trump loses or get despondent if he wins. We have to keep doing that work. The second thing is simply a, it is a, the problem we have is our Democrats to get to win need our base that turns out all the time and we need new voters and people who turn out less often. Mm-hmm. And Republicans simply need, their base turns out at a higher rate than ours. It's smaller right. when you add all those groups together, but it turns out all the time. And so they just have these natural advantages in midterms elections that are not being driven by political waves like 2018 sure. was. It's a more reliable voting block. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so they have that. And so that has been our, and they have a more reliable funding source, right? They're just simply mm-hmm. more Republican billionaires willing to invest in state legislative races, candidate training. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, like we have to, there's, there's a messaging argument from the party that we're going to have to convince our voters mm-hmm. and our donors to care more about these things. And I think there has been real progress made since 2016. And we're going to have to build the infrastructure that ensures that the the group the people who run and the people who support those who run ha- like have the tools and the funding they need to do it to compete with Republicans and some progress has been made on that but more needs to be made. Yeah, I want to get your take on media right now too because no. you do mention it a bit in your book and not a lot is said about it because Trump you know yeah. is in this de facto war against the media but there's also a lot of people feel there's aiding and abetting by the media yeah. for some of these things too. You touch on Facebook a little yeah. bit in here. Which I find interesting. Let's talk about Facebook for yep. a little bit. What What is your opinion about that in terms of the Trumpism and what's going on? And is it hurting or helping? Is this something we can we should be concerned about? Because isn't that where the Russians yeah. supposedly were messaging yes. a lot? Yeah. I think Facebook mm-hmm. is 
And not to attack Facebook, yeah. but just to observe it. Right. You know, just, yeah. just it, I think Facebook is a gigantic problem for democracy mm-hmm. in general. And really, Democrats that's a huge statement yes. for democracy. Yes. Really? And there, there's two elements of Facebook that I think are worth, like, you sort of have to separate in the conversation. One is... That when, whenever you get poked, I hate that, right? Yeah. I have no idea <laughs> I what think, it means. I think that's gone. That was going to be your first Is that one, gone? Right? I, <laughs> I don't know. Yes. I don't you know. I don't spend poked. a lot of time on Facebook. Who just poked me? <laughs> yes. Stop poking me here. I, I think, that's, I, I think it's possible that, possible that poke went out like, in Obama's first term, but I'm not yeah, sure. Let's hope. Let's yeah. hope it did. Yeah. Um, so step one is, like the first part is their decisions. There's how the Russians or others can manipulate, use Facebook to to you know, with false accounts and bots to manipulate the conversation. Mm-hmm. There was Facebook's decision to allow politicians to lie in ads. I'm just having a guess as to which politicians I that do, may benefit. Politicians always lie in ads. Well, there are, they, on television, if you, mm-hmm. like, so a television, if a television station runs an ad that someone can prove is demonstrably false, the television station is required to take it down. Mm-hmm. Now that, that is not handled perfectly across the board, but it is right. a rule. Mm-hmm. We have because we Congress does not work. We have no laws that govern digital ads, so mm-hmm. we're relying on the policies of these companies, mm-hmm. which have very different ones. Facebook has decided did not want to get in the business of fact checking ads from politicians. Uh-huh. They will fact check ads from outside groups, but if Donald Trump wants to say that Joe Biden committed a crime when Joe Biden committed a crime, he can do that on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And but the to me, like maybe one day Facebook will change that. I really think they should. But the bigger problem is simply Facebook is the most dominant media platform in the world. It mm-hmm. f- it fuels media economics for traditional media. It is how large portions of the American population, the global population, get their news. And the algorithm that decides what you see mm-hmm. is biased towards outrage-driven content. And outrage-driven content is the coin of the realm for the Trumpist right. And so that it like if there's this guy named Kevin Roos who's a New York Times reporter who will almost on a near daily basis just publish he'll tweet out the ten stories with the most engagement on Facebook, which means they're the stories being seen by the most people, mm-hmm. and they are it is ten of ten or nine of ten are far right sites. Mm-hmm. So it's like Ben Shapiro, it's Breitbart, it's these like pro Trump sites. Mm-hmm. And the New York Times is not there, the Washington Post is not there, CNN is not there, and it's because the Facebook algorithm rewards outrage because they reward engagement and engage and engage when people see outrageous content, they yell about it on, on Facebook, they comment on it on Facebook. And so more people see it. And that is, and so that's one way in which Facebook is causing a huge problem for Democrats and democracy because Democrats are, cannot get their message out on the most dominant media platform in the world. Second problem is many media outlets are dependent on traffic from Facebook to their ads, right? And mm-hmm. so if you're depending on traffic from a platform whose algorithm is likely to show more outrageous content, you're going to write more about Trump. Mm-hmm. And so it creates this world where Trump is the sort of the nation's assignment editor. And we even if the coverage is not about Trump, he's domi- is not good for Trump, like it often isn't. Much of the coverage that Trump gets is like in a sort of is technically like you would not look at it and say that is a positive story, but he's controlling the conversation. It makes it harder for Democrats to get their message out. Mm-hmm. And this is a huge impediment in this election, and it's a huge impediment to just progressive power generally going forward. Well, doesn't Facebook work like whatever 
like doesn't the algorithms are kind of tailored to the things that you look at. So if you're on the left and you're looking at those types of things, isn't that what it regurgitates back to you? No, it's a slight. Are you talking about people who are not on those sides? They're getting something. I I don't understand how it's mind controlling. It's it's not, it's not Mm -hmm. mind controlling. It's just a simple thing, which is, Facebook's goal, mm-hmm. their business goal, is to keep you on Facebook for as long as possible. Which means, which means, <laughs> well, so. I mean, just like any TV station's <laughs> yes. job is to keep you watching, right? Because right. they want to show you as many ads as possible. Sure. So the algorithm takes the articles, takes the because you don't see everything your friends post, right? Right. You see the things that get the most engagement, where they get the most engagement, where Facebook's algorithm believes you're most likely to engage in it, right? Mm-hmm. And the articles that tend to get the most engagement are the ones that uh, are conservative, right? Mm-hmm. They're outrageous. There's a reason why uh, Breitbart got into this habit of writing these incredibly offensive headlines on their stories mm-hmm. because they knew it would spark outrage on Facebook, which means it would be shown to more people. Now, if you live in a world where every single person you are connected to on Facebook is a progressive like you, you were unlikely to see that stuff. But most people, that's not how Facebook works for most people, right? You have- Well, for me, I just- I have lots of friends that yep. I don't know because I have fans and yeah. that type of stuff. But like yeah, the yeah. the regular per, like mm-hmm. like a like a normal Facebook user has like I think it's an average of like two hundred friends I think, mm-hmm. and it's a combination of their friends from high school, mm-hmm. their friends from college or from a job or their dentist or you know. Are you saying I don't have diverse friends? I'm saying that maybe you have too <laughs> many. Sometimes you can have too many friends, mm-hmm. and therefore, for the average person, is gets that group of people, and so in that world. Mm-hmm. You see, you're gonna like you're not you have not sorted by ideological basis there. You've sorted by just people you've met in your life, and and Facebook also is very has become is contributing mightily to uh, to polarization. Mm-hmm. And we this is the thing we discovered, you know, sort of in the second term of the Obama administration, mm-hmm. where we would do these focus groups with voters, the Democratic the Democratic National Committee, these focus groups with voters, and they would be very angry about just frustrated with politics mm-hmm. and. When you sort of dug into why, it's because the answer was always Facebook. Because, and, but like, if you th- here's the way you think about it is prior to Facebook, you could go to your dentist every six months for cleaning for your entire life and never know that they were a birther. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're friends with them on Facebook and now all of a sudden they're posting mm-hmm. conspiracy theories That's about so Barack funny. Obama's right. birth certificate, now it's like in your face yeah. or, you know, your son or your daughter's best friend's dad, right? Who you've been sending him to their house for sleepovers and he seems like a very nice person. Turns mm-hmm. out that they're like a Benghazi truther or a 9-11 truther. And so you're being exposed to the politics of your friends in a way you, your acquaintances in a way which you never were before because most people don't bring up politics and sort of regular, now mm-hmm. we all do. But back before you sort of knew that you kind of didn't want to know whether they, who that person was going to vote for necessarily because mm-hmm. it would color your opinion of them. And so you just didn't, and you don't want to get an argument. Now sure. Facebook facilitates that argument. Some of it does feel like a side comment to me. Like when I think of politics and who people vote for, I think a lot of it is predetermined in their minds. I really do. Mm-hmm. Like people are by and large party people yep. and it takes a lot for them to cross sides, yep. you know, and I think it, uh, the people who aren't necessarily that, you know, to me, I think they vote for more superficial reasons or people have issues that they're real concerned about more than voting for the people. Like, I think abortion is really one of those issues mm-hmm. that isn't talked about enough in terms of how it's divisive for a lot of people who are in the middle. Yeah. You know, where 
Um, like, I know some people who didn't even vote for Obama because, you know, he was pro-choice, yep. you know, yep. whatever. And by any other means, they're not against a lot of, yep. you know, this or that. You know, it's abortion is that issue. To me, it's one of those issues that is still one of the more divisive issues in our society right now, you know. It, it, it is. Like, over— time and Ezra Klein has this great book called mm-hmm. Why We're Polarized that really mm-hmm. explores this this topic and yeah. in it he talks about he, he talks about a bunch of political science which shows that you know identity is like politics is often about identity mm-hmm. right and people sort themselves by who they are right it can be everything from I'm a graduate of this high school or college to mm-hmm. I grew up in this town to I'm a Lakers fan or a Clippers fan. Like right. you divide yourself along those ways. Or my parents were always this and my family was right. this. Right. But recently in the last 10 years, though, political identity has become the meta identity. And mm-hmm. it was actually more important than the things you believe in, which mm-hmm. is why Trump was able to upend the idea that Republicans were pro-trade. Right. Republican mm-hmm. Party had always identified as pro-trade. Mm-hmm. But being a Republican was more important than being pro-trade. I think there are some issues that sort of belie that argument where, like, no matter what, like, if Trump was a, had come out as pro-choice, mm-hmm. that some that some of these, for, there, are, there, are, there are some litmus test voters. But mm-hmm. I think you are right that, like, we are fighting on the margins here, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. now, the, oftentimes in that conversation, the, what gets left out is the 40% of Americans who do not participate in politics. Mm-hmm. And they... Like, we always think swing voter is this group of people in Wisconsin, usually, like, white people. And, like, how do we get those people? Because there, and there are some of them, the Obama-Trump voters, the Romney-Clinton voters. Right. But what about, like, the big group of swing voters is non-voters the voters, right? And that's okay. a much larger—they're harder to get. It's more— You have to convince them to do something they don't normally do. Yes. And which is vote. Right. And it's, right. it's very—you have to register them. Then mm-hmm. you have to convince them to—you have to convince them to register. Then you have to register them. Mm-hmm. Then you have to remind them to vote. Then you have to get them to vote. And you have to make sure they vote for your person. So that's a very time-intensive thing. But it is a much larger group of people mm-hmm. that are available to you to possibly come to your side than just trying to get the— those people who do the few people who do still go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Have you talked to many people who, who, uh, and I don't mean the firebrand supporting mm-hmm. Trump people who would maybe support for the wrong reasons yeah. that you, but have you talked to anybody who supports Trump for might be these other reasons? Like they feel like, Hey, he's doing a good job in the economy or, Hey, you know, I like the fact that he's fighting China and trade because China has been an abuser of trade policies and that type of thing, you know, and and where they're what, what would be the thing that might change their mind about supporting somebody like Trump in when I say this yeah. in the midst of a strong economy in the midst of not a strong economy would be a compelling yeah. reason. But if they say, well, the economy is doing well and I, I like the fact that he's a fighter. Yeah, there's, like, there's a lot of that, yeah. right? There, you both in people I've talked to in my life and people I've seen in focus groups. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a lot of like, I don't like the things he says. A, a lot of yes, I hate exactly. the I hate the tweeting, right? Um, but he's trying to change the system, and the economy is pretty good, right? right? That like that that is the argument. So mm-hmm. like, what Democrats like to say? He's not wrong. Even though he's wrong yes. sometimes, but he's not wrong. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, that sounds weird. I mean, they're like, like, he's not wrong, but even he, though he's wrong. And it's mm-hmm. like, we have to be like, there's a, there, like, it's important to try to understand why people have those positions without mm-hmm. excusing some of the compromises they're making for that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, I don't agree with the racist things he says, but right. that's not, but you also have to 
recognize that you helped put a racist in the Oval Office and what mm-hmm. that means for everyone else who is the target of that racism, right? So mm-hmm. you got to understand those voters without without excusing him for like what what like the consequences of it. Well, it's people say like, yeah, he shouldn't have said that about Mexicans, but I don't want open borders. Yeah. Which is not a, a racist concept. Right. You know, yeah, that's yeah. A, a sovereign nation concept, yeah. you know, that every sovereign nation on the face of the earth you right. know, kind of rules by why should we be any different, yeah. you know, or, you know, like I said, in the, yeah. the trade comment, you know. Um, yeah, what, what changes that, right? Yes, exactly. So I think it's two things. One is, I think it is taking on the idea that he's actually trying to change the system. Right. Right. And we have seen in polling, I've seen in polling that people voters are quite disturbed by the fact that he is making a lot of money as president, right? <laughs> that your taxpayer dollars are going to his pocket every time he goes to Mar-a-Lago such, such or the Trump hotel. And right. that infuriates voters who like Trump. So yes. that's one. And two, we're not going to win this election. That he's and, a profiteer president. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like that, because that undermines the idea that he's trying to change the system. Now it looks like he's exploiting it. Right. And so right. the second part of this is Democrats will not win this election if we don't win the economic debate. Mm-hmm. And that is very challenging with this unemployment right Completely. now. As we sit here today, the economy is going through a lot of tumult with coronavirus. Whether that will still be true in November is an open well, question. the market did need a correction. Yes. Yes. Right. And and a lot of how people feel in the about the economy is a combination of what they feel in their daily lives, mm-hmm. the uncertainty. They, like, sure. you can be in a world that Obama certainly was for a lot of his presidency where – the indicators were all headed in the right direction and looked good, but people were st- felt real uncertain. He never got credit for yeah. any improvements because they were yeah. so incremental, and people were still going through this this horrible yeah. thing and, that just happened. Right, and, and so that, you know, but then people can also, you can also be in a situation where your you feel fine, you may feel fine right there, but that what the atmosphere around you is very concerning, right? Mm-hmm. But either how whether we're in a world where the economy looks like it looked a month ago. In November, or it looks like it looks right now, which is mm-hmm. very tumultuous and companies canceling, you know, working from home and the stock market going up and down and mm-hmm. everyone revising their growth estimates down. Like now it seems fear, you know, it's fear inducing. Sure. Either way, Democrats have to take that on and win it. And I think the core part of that argument is you have to reframe the question from is the economy working to who is it working for? Mm-hmm. And you have to make it about the fact that the that under Trump, his policies have benefited the wealthy corporations over hmm. middle and working class and poor people. And it's pretty, it like, the case is, like, open and shut. You know, he his tax cut overwhelmingly went to the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Under his wages have barely budged. The cost of health care, energy, retirement, housing have all gone up. And, you know, this is the example that I think, like, can resonate with people, and you can pick your company du jour here, but... Americans now pay more for their Amazon Prime subscription than Amazon <laughs> paid in federal taxes. That's so funny. And yeah. you know, and you could you could pick you know any there's a, there's a large number of companies but who Trump are Trump hates Bezos too. Yeah, I know, which is funny. It's <laughs> <laughs> like he he likes business yeah. so much See, that he won't say, even. Yeah, Trump is against that too. Yeah. You're right. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. So, um, and he has a budget proposal that for all the Democratic consternation and fears about the politics of Medicare for all, mm-hmm. which I think are legitimate should be discussed. One thing I do know is that a policy proposal, which Trump has to 
cut Social Security and Medicare to pay for a tax cut for Wall Street mm-hmm. is more unpopular than whatever you want to say about Medicare for all. And so right. we have to make that argument and you have to turn it into a question of who the economy works for. It's the inverse of what Obama it's had to do. It, yeah, it's, it's very it's hard. Tough but it's the inverse of what Obama did against Romney in 2012. Our fear in 2012 was if the if the economy was based on how it feels right now, we will lose that election. Yeah, and that argument mm. historically has never worked. Yeah. I I I can't point yeah. to any time when that argument has never worked. You mean when you've when you've won an extra economy? I've never seen an argument where you say, "Yeah, unemployment's at what is it, three point nine percent?" But is it working for you? That has never well, won an election. Well, Obama was able to right. take to do it when employment was at eight and a half, and say, "Who's going to fight for you in this economy, me or Mitt Romney?" Are you talking? Oh, in two thousand twelve, yeah. But Obama was an incumbent president. He was, yeah. So, th- right. like, he was an incumbent president, and Mitt Romney was the physical embodiment of everything people hated about the economy. Yeah. And so like it, it was but it was Romney that made the argument, not Obama. He did, but what we did, right. like Romney tried to do what Trump wants to do, which is say, do you think this economy is working right now? And if you don't vote for me, because people were not feeling good about the economy. No, that's what the Democrats have to do is right. what, is that. That's yes. what I'm saying, Yes. You know? Obama was the president, yeah. and the Republican argument was yeah. it's not going fast enough. Yeah. Like, this is the slowest recovery yeah. ever, you know, yeah. and trying to do comparative yeah. analysis, you know. Like, I call these loser arguments. Yeah. It's yeah. like when you're the loser, yeah. you know, these, like, when they're attacks on electoral yeah. college or these things, you know, these attacks never happen when you win. You yeah. know, they always happen when you lose, you know. Um, but I, I still think the Democrats, the reason why I'm bringing mm. this up, I don't know if they've really pinpointed other than Trump's personality, what that winning attack is. And I, I personally don't think it's the economy, and I get it. I think they're, I think it's a separate issue because that issue that they're talking about, honestly, has been around for a long time, and it's been something that's growing a long time. The, the inequality. Inequality. Yeah. The inequality of wages, yeah. the reason why that inequality has happened. It's been, you could argue, you could go back to, uh, there's this great article about the erasure of middle management. Yeah. You know, you read that, mm-hmm. you know, about I think it was about McKinsey, you know, amazing article. Yeah. You know, I actually had a conversation with President Clinton mm-hmm. about this a few years ago where he kind of laid it out and so true. And yeah. how there's just been an erasure of the means by which people can use an economic ladder yeah. in their lives, you know, and those things. I think if they've talked about more clearly, it might be something, yeah. but it's still not a vote against. It's a force. It's a vote for, which I think is good, you know. Right. And but it's tough when you have that headwind. There's, there's, there there yeah. is a very big, there are, we have two headwinds, incumbency. And yes. we have seen, and this is a disturbing thing, but we see in polling that I'll, most voters think that, pres, that the default for a president is two terms. Mm-hmm. So the burden of proof yes. in a, in a, against right. an incumbent is much higher than yes. it is in another race. And That's so, right. that, so yeah. that is a headwind. The other headwind is incumbency plus economy. Mm-hmm. Now, Trump is a unique political figure in yeah. that a normally behaved president would be cruising to re-election, yes. right? Trump can actually beat himself yes. in this election, actually. I, I think <laughs> his personality is a thing that is somewhat baked into the cake, mm-hmm. right? Like, people know it. And I think there is this, I think it's a somewhat elitist view from some Democratic political types is, if only we could tell the dumb Trump voters what a bad person Trump is, they would walk away from him. Right. And I think people make a much more educated decision. Mm-hmm. That, like they take a, it's, a, it's an educated gamble, which is the system has not worked for me. Mm-hmm. This person said he's going to shake up the system. Mm-hmm. This could go horribly, but things weren't going that well anyway, so mm-hmm. we're going to take it. We're going to take the risk. So we're, you're like, we're going to have to 
get those vote get some number of right. those voters to be willing to think that that what that that gamble did not pay off and it, then you take another one. Yes, it's connecting what they're going through with the Trump administration not addressing it. Yep. You know, that somehow they're the reason why they're yep. left out, which is a tough argument to make, yeah. you know. And it, it like they're in some ways it's like it seems impossible, but mm-hmm. another way to think about it is we're really like we were so close last time, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to convince that many people mm-hmm. to get to two hundred seventy thousand to get to two hundred seventy electoral votes, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this was seventy thousand votes over three states. We're going to need more than that seventy thousand because Trump's turnout is going to be up. Yeah, because he's an incumbent. He's right? an incumbent, and and people are used to him now. He's kind of normalized. Yeah, like the lying's not an issue anymore. Yeah, he's normalized lying. Yeah. And so we're going to need more voters mm-hmm. than we. Do. It's not just with seventy thousand and one gets us there. We're going right. to need. Uh, we're going to get to more people than that. But it still is. In our polarized environment with a particular president like Trump, we are fighting. You're, 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 we're already at the three-yard line. The question right. is, can we get the last three yards yeah. into the end zone? I think it it is. It certainly is possible. And I think there's a, a – I, we often think about politics in terms of permission structures. Mm-hmm. Like how do you give people permission to do a thing they want to do? Hmm, interesting. And so in Obama 2008, we had this challenge, which was Democratic voters loved Obama. So this mm-hmm. is early in the primary. They yeah. loved them. Very charismatic. Very charismatic. Mm-hmm. They, they, young family. Just everything about them they loved. Right. But they weren't sure he was A, ready to be president or mm-hmm. B, could win the presidency. Right. And so we had to give them permission to do the thing they wanted to do. And mm-hmm. we always believed that winning Iowa was the first step on that. With what Barack right. Obama could show, he could win Iowa, this lily white state. It would move voters in his place. Mm-hmm. And it did, right? And he ended up becoming completely. And yeah. so how do you give people who disapprove of Trump, like if only the people who approved of Trump voted for Trump, he cannot win. Mm-hmm. So there are some number of people who disapprove of Trump dis- for his conduct, for the chaos. Whether you're never Trumpers or yeah. some of the people we've talked about yeah. who, uh, I don't know. Yeah, so how do you give them permission to do something else? Okay. Right? And that that is how we have to think about it. And so part of that is whether you can win the economy or not. Mm-hmm. Like if you can bring, like that, the economy is the biggest permission structure that Trump skeptics have to vote. It gives them permission to vote for Trump. Okay. So how can you take that on? How can you take other, these other skeptical voters and show that, and this isn't coming upon our nominee, whoever that is, whether that's Biden or Bernie, is how can you give them permission to take a gamble on someone else, right? Yes. And like that, and there there's a limited number of voters in the country you have to do that with mm-hmm. in order to succeed. Yeah, it's funny because I think... I have a slight disagreement yeah. in here because I think it's it's going to be counterintuitive in this election, you know. Um, and I want to ask your opinion of who you think is best suited um, to maybe go after this. I think the thing that you're talking about appeals to the Democratic Party voters, yeah. you know, inequality and in wages, yeah. you know, tax cut stuff and all that. But it's interesting, even though I would have thought mm. differently about this, ironically, I think it might be a personality contest, at the end of the day. And the people that are turned off for Trump aren't really turned off for the reasons you've stated. <laughs> you know, your never Trumpers and some of these other people are actually turned off by his behavior, his trolling on Twitter, his uh, throwing, oh, for sure. throwing for sure. his intelligence team under yeah. the bus in Helsinki, things like that on an you know, yep. international stage, his conduct as president, a lot of those reasons. And I think they want to have permission to not vote for him for those reasons. Yes. You know, and so... And and the, here's why how I think you do that. Yes, I think it's sure. very important is you have to connect that 
the chaos mm-hmm. of Trump, right? This is sort of the, the like right. one of the, the, the theories I talk about. leader. Yeah. It just, it's like the, like you have to connect the chaos of his behavior, mm-hmm. like well, whatever that means, the Ukraine call sure. or the butting up to Putin in Helsinki or mm-hmm. like the ridiculous tweets about Elizabeth Warren, like whatever it is, yeah. right? What it's just, mm-hmm. it's exhausting, right? Yeah. But if it's just like, is that conduct good or is that conduct bad? I don't think we're going to win that. But it's like, right. what is the opportunity cost of that conduct? What are we not mm-hmm. getting done? What, is, right. what could he be doing with that time that would help your life if he mm-hmm. wasn't so wrapped up in himself, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's a big part of the argument. And now who the, re- the right candidate is to carry that argument is an open question. Mm-hmm. But like they're, like I have seen polling which suggests that one of Trump's big – and I'm somewhat skeptical that this really could work, but a lot of people in the party believe it – is – that Trump's tweeting is one of his great weaknesses because mm-hmm. it, it not because people care about Twitter, but it is symbolic yeah. of the larger sense that he really spends most of his time fighting for himself. Yeah. And and just trolling. Yeah. yeah. Like all that's about him. It's horrible. Right? All the it tweeting. Really is horrible. Yeah. It, all, all of that is about him and fighting. Mm-hmm. Like, and so there's this, like, what if you had a really, and I often think like how Obama would take this on. Like what Obama would say if he was running against someone like Trump is he would say something like, what if you had a president who woke up every day thinking, who woke up every day fighting for you, not fighting for himself, mm-hmm. right? Spent every day, you know, fighting the insurance companies to make sure you got better health care instead of fighting with CNN to make sure and they got better coverage, of right? That yeah. yeah, that's good. And yeah. so, like- Damn, we need you out there writing. <laughs> so, like that, like that, like I think there's a lot to that argument. Right. And it is going to be certainly multifaceted in how you get there. There's not one simple way to beat Trump, but right. you're like, you like, like that. That using his conduct as a way, it's sort of the jujitsu of yeah. this. But you're right. It is tough. Do you think, let me ask you this last question, and then I want to ask you the, about the Bernie yeah. uh, Biden thing. Um, I think Mike Bloomberg's half a billion dollars <laughs> um, would have been served better if he had primary Trump. You know, if he had stayed in his own yeah. party and did what Ross Perot did to, you know, to Bush, yeah. you know, and— yeah. uh, even what Ted Kennedy did yeah. to Jimmy Carter, you know, uh, to weaken from that side and make the argument because he's really making a personality argument that Trump isn't a leader, but he doesn't really have a disagreement with his policies. Oh, there's he, certain- he does he doesn't have a fundamental disagreement the way that most Democrats have. Yeah, other than guns yeah. and climate change. But yeah, people don't really care yeah. that much. You know, I I yeah. think. Do you think that would have been served better? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen yeah. yet, but to. Actually, like be running yeah. against Trump the, on the Republican side. You know? The hard part, mm-hmm. if he had spent his five billion dollar, his five hundred million dollars or whatever mm-hmm. it is. I mean, like, obviously he got like twenty delegates, so there are a million ways you can spend it better. But right. the challenge against primarying Trump would was if he had stayed. A, I guess if let me put it this way, if he had stayed a Republican right. the whole time mm-hmm. and never become a Democrat and had tried to run in that primary and run half a million dollars of negative ads against Trump yeah. from the center right, yeah. then I think that could have been damaging because he would have had this credibility as this right. Republican businessman. That's what I mean, yeah. The hard part in it is the Republicans are smart about this, which is why they canceled their primaries. Yes, So they canceled true. the South Carolina primary. So, so he could have Those run the— sneaky motherfuckers, yes, man. He could have run the ads— yeah. But he couldn't have actually gotten votes. Couldn't have done thing, yeah. anything about it. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think like five hundred million dollars spent against Trump from the perspective of a center right businessman mm-hmm. would have, I think, been more persuasive, obviously, than five hundred billion dollars trying to make it seem like 
Michael Bloomberg and Barack Obama were best friends. (laughs) (laughs) That certainly hasn't contributed to the defeat of Trump. Yes. I know. I, you know, I understand why he's doing it. I get it. I I I give him a lot of credit for it, you know. Okay, last question. Dan, thanks so much for stopping by. Untrumping America, you guys, it really is, it's really a funny book too, but it's also a sobering book at the same time. You know, there's so much in it. I've danced around a bit because I just got it, but um, you know, I've I've read some of the stuff in a little more detail than others, but it's it's so readable. It's, well, thank you. Yeah, it's it's your fun read actually. Thank you. yeah. uh, with this dark kind of subject <laughs> yeah, yeah. matter, it's yeah, we it's yeah. it's gallows humor. So it was <laughs> yes, a real thing is. we learned in the White House. Yes, it is gallows humor. <laughs> yes. That's true. I could tell. Yeah. You, you could tell that. You know. Um, okay, here's what I want to know from your your prognostication about this. Who do you think, without choosing a candidate, yeah. I'm not asking you to do this. But what candidacy, maybe I'll say that as opposed to a person, do you think is better suited to bring out the electorate that needs to come out to defeat Donald Trump? Is it the Bernie Sanders type of here's my vision, here's where I think the party needs to go? I'm not even in the party, but I think we need to be standing for these values of Medicare for all. We need to be erasing student debt. We need to be looking for the working class, like which possibly is the future of the party. Yep. You know, Green New Deal, that type of stuff so many ideas or the type of candidate who says this guy is a horrible person and I'm the guy that needs to replace him you know and it's just that energy of getting rid of the boogeyman yeah. getting rid of boogeyman energy or taking the party forward energy I'm going to try not to answer this in the most cowardly way possible yeah. but um, <laughs> like I'm saying I'm yeah. not choosing you to pick a candidate yeah. I'm saying which do you think bring will get people out of their seat more I mean it is I think what is the I was trying to like talk to people about this last night, and mm-hmm. in some ways, Bernie Sanders is the candidate with the better message and the better campaign, mm-hmm. but Biden is a better fit for the electorate. Yeah. And you would say, just I think before Tuesday night, you would have said, obviously, Bernie Sanders is more likely to turn out the quote-unquote base mm-hmm. and, and, and generate enthusiasm. And the question was going to be whether his very progressive policies and his, the label of democratic socialism whether it turned off too too many voters to make up for that base. Mm. But what is interesting is I think Tuesday night. And we're talking about Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday, yeah. Right. Super, on Super Tuesday, mm-hmm. Joe Biden, the the mo- the voters who turned out for the fir- Democratic primary for the first time voted two to one for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And I think that that speaks to a thing that we should take as a lesson from 2018 which is there's a whole group of people who had sort of sat out politics before 2016, but have become very engaged since then. Mm -hmm. These are the people, they did not vote in the 2016 primary, but they did vote in the 2018 congressional election, and many of them knocked doors and gave money. And those people came out in this time, and they chose Joe Biden. And we had record turnout in North Carolina, Virginia, surpassing the 2008 Obama-Clinton primary. That's amazing. And that is largely because of huge African-American turnout. So Mm -hmm. Joe Biden, for whether it is because of Trump, because of Biden, because of Biden's relationship with Obama, whatever it is, Joe Biden had a great Super Tuesday night because he generated massive turnout among African-American voters across the southern states, at least. And, like, we should not dismiss that because it runs counter to the narrative that we have been thinking about for this entire election where Bernie's the turnout candidate and Biden's the persuasion candidate. Right. Biden pers- in the within the context of the primary at least Biden persuaded and turned out once the electorate got more diverse. And I think that that, that is notable. Now we got a whole bunch of contests to come up and Biden Bernie's got a chance to change or that. Or you equation. could argue once the field narrowed. Also, once the field, that yes. is exactly right. Once the field narrowed. Right. And, and they go, okay, I guess I can't vote for Klobuchar now. I guess, yeah. I guess it doesn't make sense to vote yeah. for Warren, you know. 
I think what happened was there was these group of very politically engaged, mostly college-educated white voters who were mm-hmm. candidate shopping the whole time, mm-hmm. right? They were the ones who, they were like, Biden, Warren, Pete, Kamala, Pete, Biden, Warren, you know? And, <laughs> and go, if I have to come back to Biden, yeah. I shall. Well, then, it, then, But let me try, let me yeah. have some dalliance over yeah, here. That's yeah. right. They dated everyone. And yeah. then when the most votes were on the table, it came down to essentially Biden and Bernie. And Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. was not able to on that it's Tuesday night to get there. And- so he consolidated that group, and then for the f- starting in South Carolina, for the first time in this primary process, African American voters had a say, mm-hmm. and they made it very clear that Biden was their choice. Right? He, he won two thirds of African American voters, and that is the formula for winning the Democratic nomination for sure. It's the it's how Clinton won, and it's how Obama won the nomination. And we'll see if it is the formula for winning the general. That we will see. We will. We will see that as well. Oh, black people, we always got to come out and save white people. <laughs> it's it's on your just don't understand it. Well, we're, we're, well most, we lost most of the us election because gra- black people didn't come out. <laughs> well, most of us are grateful. <laughs> so. I said, why does Obama have to be the janitor president and clean up all this <laughs> yeah. mess that people made? Dan, thanks so much for stopping by. Untrump in America, you guys, plan to make America a democracy again. You got to get your, your red hats, you know, and put that on you. Yeah, that's, we got to, we got to make America a democracy. We got to bump up the, I think we do make them blue, but we would, yeah. uh, I got to get the publisher to uh, bump up the marketing budget. Yeah. It'll be MATA instead of MAGA. MATA. Right? Yep. Yeah, you're MAGA. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Uh,